As you've heard this morning, we celebrate our communion with all the saints. Not just those we have lost this past year, but all the saints. When I was at Covenant Presbyterian Church, uh, it took about a year and a half for us to develop a specific mission uh, statement for who we were as a church in Atlanta. And we finally came up with uh, to equip the saints, to equip the saints to serve Christ in the world. That's what our session came up with. And when we put it out for the congregation, we got a lot of pushback because the congregation did not want to be considered saintly. We're not saints, they said. Saints are what happens when you die. But the Apostle Paul was clear that saints are those gathered around the table. Saints are those who confess Christ as Lord. Saints are Christians who follow God's way and will. So we're all the saints, but not just us, as you've heard, those who have come before us and those who will follow. Interestingly, when the Bible speaks about heaven, it doesn't give us much to go on, what it looks like and who will be there. Um, some people claim to know the temperature of heaven and how the furniture is arranged. I wish I could claim that quote. Um, but the Bible only speaks in symbol and metaphor. And the book of Revelation is the personification of all of that. It gives us a glimpse of heaven through a veil of what God's kingdom is like and what, what we might find there and who. In fact, it was written to be thought of more as a present gift than a future one, written to the Christians uh, in Asia Minor around John, the gospel writer John's churches, the seven churches, who were getting hammered by the Romans because after the revolt in Jerusalem in uh, AD 70 and after the temple was burned by the Romans, the second temple, they began to scapegoat the Jews and the Christians, think Christians in the Colosseum with lions. And facing that tribulation and persecution, this letter was written to them to give them hope for the future. Hear this word as it is given to us from the seventh chapter of Revelation, verse 1 through 17. Let us pray. Oh God, may this word be a vision for us so that we may envision your way and will in Christ's name. Amen. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees 
until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. And then he goes down the next verses all the way down to verse 8 with the 12 tribes of Israel from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed, and Reuben, and Gad, and Asher, and Naphtali, and Manasseh, and Simeon, and Levi, and Issachar, and Zebulun, and Joseph, and Benjamin, all the 12 tribes of Israel sealed, 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. And after this, I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could even count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. It's meant to be a huge surprise. Not just 144,000, the number bannered about all over the place. When you ask those who study this book how many will actually be saved, that's just the Jews. The big surprise is that there is a great multitude so large you couldn't even count them from every nation and every tribe and all the peoples and languages, all standing before the Lamb of God, robed in white, holding palm branches. Those who had suffered those who had gone through the great ordeal. On this Sunday, we call all saints. We remember those like this great multitude who have gone before us and are now at rest with God. And we pray that they are also part of this great multitude and we can envision them and we can imagine them standing with God on the throne 
holding palm branches in their hands, dressed in white, with God, God's hand not smiting them as some would think, not smashing them to bits as God would think, as, as some would think, but God's hand more like a loving father, a loving mother whose hand shelters them from the scorching seat, uh, scorching sun, and gives them food and drink and wipes every tear from their eyes. What a vision of the hand of God. It's a beautiful vision. And when we think of our loved ones being there with God's hand upon them, it makes us glad and it makes us sad that they're not with us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, the psalm goes. Does it remind you anything uh, in what we just read with God's hand and Jesus the lamb leading the sheep to green pastures? There's a second surprise in this, by the way, besides the great multitude, and that is not just the 12 tribes of Israel, but the writer wants us to understand that the people standing there now include many of those that we might imagine should not be there. Maybe our enemies or siblings that we are estranged from, our opponents, people from all over the world, immigrants, Africans, African-Americans, Asians, Latinos, GLBTQ and white conservative heterosexuals, all part of the great multitude. And there's a third surprise, and that is that what will be revealed in this, in this great place is that none of it, all that identity matters. None of it. Our pedigrees, our genders, our identities, our race, our politics, our net worth, none of it matters because it has all been burned away like chaff when we die. All burned. And only the wheat, the very kernel of who we are in the image of God remains. For some of us, I'll include myself, there's going to be a whole lot to be burned. But I pray and I trust that there'll be a whole lot left that remains standing. This passage reminds me of a Flannery O'Connor story called Revelation. I actually used this last spring in our um, uh, Lenten, no, Advent um, no, when was it? Yeah. Uh, Holy Week services at, uh, at uh, Wesley Methodist Church. So if you've heard it once, uh, it's worth hearing twice. The story goes that Mrs. Turpin, a large woman in ego and in size, and her husband Claude come through the doctor's door to stand in the waiting room like the waiting room of heaven. Apparently, Claude has been kicked by a stray cow and has developed an ulcer on his leg. <clears throat> but Miss Turpin's always in charge, and so 
Claude obediently obeys her and when she comes in, she points to the one chair that's empty and tells Claude to sit down there. And she does. She notices that there's a couch with a woman on it that looks like white trash and maybe her mother beside her and a young boy kind of stretched out on the couch. And Ms. Turpin thought, you know, if, if he had been refined and well-bred, that young boy would get up and give me a seat. That's how I know she thought that they must be white trash. Another woman she noticed who was fashionably dressed was sitting beside her um, uh, teenage daughter whose eyes were blue and whose face was also blue by the acne. Mrs. Turpin thought, oh, what a, what a poor, ugly child that is. And that young daughter, or daughter was reading a book, a textbook called Human Development. An old farmer was sitting in the other chair, fidgeting with his hat. Standing there, she looked around and had a prayer of gratitude that she was not one of those white trash people on the couch, and a prayer of gratitude that she was also white and not a Negro, only she used the N-word in the story. Sometimes when Mrs. Turpin would have trouble sleeping, she would occupy her mind by questioning who she would have chosen to be if she hadn't been born who she was. She'd rate all the people according to things, and white trash was the lowest, and then came the, the N-word people, and then tenant farmers, and then landowners, and finally the wealthy. She considered herself a landowner. If Jesus had said, you have two choices, either be born a Negro or be born white trash, she would have said, no, Jesus, no. Please make me one of them other people. Can't, can't you just wait? No, Jesus would say, you've got to choose. It was a hard choice, she thought, but she finally went with the N-word person because even Negroes own a small piece of land from time to time. Soon the old farmer gets called to go in to see the doctor and she gets a chair and she ends up sitting right directly across from that fashionable lady whose daughter was reading the book. The daughter was obviously cross with Mrs. Turpin sitting down because she could see through her and see in her a mile away. Her false humility Mrs. Turpin tried to get her attention. Nice clock on the wall, don't you think? And the daughter just put her book down and stared at Mrs. Turpin, scowling. Then she slammed her book shut and continued staring at her. Mrs. Turpin then began to talk to her mother, complaining about how hard it is to get good work these days to help pick the cotton and at that, the white trash woman on the couch broke in and said, I'd rather raise cotton than pigs. Nasty smelling hogs, stinking, grunting, and rooting all over the place. Turns out Miss Turpin raised pigs. So she said, not our pigs. Their feet never touch the ground. They live on a concrete slab and we wash them down every single day. Then Mrs. Turpin settled back 
and thank God for making her such a good person. She counted her blessings. She helped everybody, was a good church member, grateful not to be born either an inward person or white trash. Thank you, Jesus, she prayed. Then she looked back at the girl reading the book or was reading the book and said, you must be in college. The girl said nothing, just continued to stare her down. Her mother spoke up, yes. She goes to Wellesley, so smart, all she does is read. I don't understand it. She never smiles, she sulks, gets mean as a snake. What a thing for a mother to say in front of her daughter. Ms. Turpin says, I'm glad I've never hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. One thing I am, she said, grateful. When I think of all I've got, a little of everything, I just want to shout, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for making me who I am and the way things are. And at the end of that, the girl who was reading the book lifts her arm and fires it right at Miss Turpin and conks her right on the forehead with it, sending Miss Turpin to the ground. The girl then jumps out of her seat, jumps on Miss Turpin and begins to strangle her by the neck. <clears throat> her mother jumped on the girl. A nurse came running in. They called the doctor. They held her down. The doctor gave her a shot of something to put her out. And the doctor looked at her mom and said, I'm glad you brought her in. Now we know for sure that she will never get better. Call the ambulance and take her to the hospital. Mrs. Turpin remembered all that, but she also remembered the one thing that the girl said to her before she passed out. The girl looked at Miss Turpin in the eyes and said to her, go to hell, go where you came from, to hell, you old warthog. After her husband was patched up, they made their way back home that afternoon. They were exhausted, so they decided to take a nap, and they're lying in bed, and Claude goes to sleep immediately and does his usual snoring thing, and, and Miss Turpin lay in her bed trying to figure out what just happened. She couldn't sleep. She started getting angry. She, she got so angry, she started screaming at God, I am not an old warthog from hell. Then she got up, she made Claude some, some supper and began to march her way out of the house, down the path to go wash off her hogs. I am not an old warthog from hell, she kept screaming. Why did you send me this message? I am not, I am not. How can I be saved and also from hell? Why me? I'm a good person. You could have made me the N-word. You could have made me white trash. Why me? Why a warthog? She continued to scream. And then she stopped. And there was nothing but silence throughout all the woods. Finally, she raised her hands to the sky. And when she looked up, she saw a purple streak rising from the ground going up into the clouds. And the closer she looked at it, the, 
the more she could see that it was actually a huge swinging bridge going from the ground all the way up to heaven. And in the middle of the bridge, in order to pass it, you had to walk through a huge field of living fire. And upon that bridge was a vast horde of souls whose sins were all being burned away by that fire tromping up toward heaven. And leading the pack in front were companies, whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives. And behind, behind the white trash came, came the black people in white robes. And then battalions of freaks and lunatics like, like that fashionably dressed lady's uh, uh, daughter, lunatics, behind all that, walking up, clapping like frogs. And finally, at the end of it all, was a procession of her tribe of people whom she recognized at once, like herself and Claude. They always had a little of everything, and they always thought they had the wisdom to use it. As she leaned forward to observe it more closely, they all marched with great dignity accountable as they had learned to be, made good, in order, respectable. Yet she could see by their shocked faces, they were all altered, that they were not only cleansed from their sins, not just their sins were being burned away, but also their virtues. Fourth surprise. Also their virtues being burned away. All of their righteousness going up in smoke. And she lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen. And her eyes were small and fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. And in a moment her vision faded and she remained where she was until she could no longer stay there. It was her revelation. She got down and turned off the hose and headed on her way back up the darkening path to the house with the invisible cricket choruses. But what she heard in those cricket voices were all those souls climbing upward to the starry field and shouting, Alleluia. Up in smoke all of it, to burn away the chaff and leave only the wheat. How good it will be. Amen.